Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for our church and for Sunday mornings. It's good for us to be here. Father, we know that we need you. And so we come to a a place, come to God in an event or a service or a meeting where we know that you can be found and we worship you for even that. God, we pray it would always be the case that this church and these people at this location would always be a setting where God can be found. Father, today I pray that you would come to us through the truth of the word, your powerful word. God, we are starting or coming to our second message from 1 Peter. We'll be here for quite some time. Give us, God, a commitment to hearing it and understanding it. Give our hearts understanding today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is a place you can put your bookmark. We're going to be there every Sunday for now for quite some time. Last week we started it. I gave an introduction to who Peter is. We looked at verse 1. Today we're going to look back at verses 1 and 2. I'll say a little bit more about verse 1 and, and, and get through verse 2. And then we'll be about ready to take off and, and we'll be going uh, pretty good from there. Last week I talked a lot about who Peter is, the Apostle Peter. How Peter is that one who was a leader among the twelve of Jesus' followers and how he is known for being bold and courageous and also for being outspoken and for oftentimes putting his foot in his mouth and yet we can identify a lot with Peter. And now Peter has written two letters. Peter's one of the leaders in the book of Acts where we see the church being started and then after Peter, Paul takes over in in the book of Acts. Of course, we know all of the apostles of God were out uh, reaching the world. But we have here, kind of tucked away in the, in the back part of the New Testament towards the end of the Bible, two small books called First and Second Peter. And First and Second Peter are, are treasures to us. They're two of the best books in all the Bible. Inspired by God, and so we commit ourselves to them knowing that, that this is the Word of God. Peter writing, but under the inspiration of God, this is the Word of God, and you and I want to know what God is saying. We're going to look today at Peter referring to the believers. I said last week that you know this is a letter, and I talked about that, and about half of the New Testament are just letters. Letters written from one person to the other. Actually, more than half of the New Testament. They're letters. And these are letters written from Paul to Christians. But each person writes a little bit differently, and he doesn't necessarily say, from Peter to Christians. I think I said Paul just a second ago. Peter, Peter to Christians. He doesn't say that. He calls them elect exiles. I said that last week. And these elect exiles are located in in different regions all around. He names uh, the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are all places located in the Middle East. And, and, And so he's talking to Christians there, but he refers to them as elect exiles. And I said a little bit last week about what that means and... An exile is somebody who, who doesn't really belong there. It's like an alien, a, a foreigner. And, and really what Peter's getting at is that for Christians, this is not our home. This place doesn't satif- satisfy us ultimately. Heaven is our home and we're willing to do everything we can here um, for the sake of God because we know that eventually we'll be with Him forever. That's why things like sacrifice and obedience and, and suffering are big themes in the Bible because we see everything here is temporary. 
We don't see suffering as out of place. We see that sometimes life brings suffering. But suffering in the Bible is small, the Bible says, in comparison to, to forever with God. Because heaven is our home. Heaven is forever. Eternity is forever. And so an exile, uh, calling us exiles, is saying that, that we're Christians living here, not in our home. Heaven's our home. Well, elect exiles means that we became exiles not because we did it, but because God saved us. God chose us. God pulled us out of our sins and made us his children. He elected us to be his, his, his exiles. We are chosen by God, the Bible teaches. That's what he means when he says elect exiles. Well, he doesn't want to leave it at that. And it's interesting. Peter is Peter's writing this awesome book, this awesome letter, and, and he gives lots of qualification now to the elect exiles. And verse 2 is a loaded verse about what a Christian really is. And I like it when the Bible does this. And I wouldn't normally spend a ton of time on uh, the introduction because it's just an introduction. I could have spent no time on it and I could have said, this is Peter the Apostle writing to the Christians. I could have just said that. Peter could have just said that as well. But he goes into great depth. And so I want you and I to understand that. It's important for you and I to understand what is a Christian according to God's Word? And how do you become a Christian according to God's Word? What made me a Christian according to God's Word? What keeps me a Christian according to God's Word? Now, I know that in your mind you have all the answers to those questions. And I know that in the world there's a lot of answers to those questions. But none of that really goes very far if it's not true. And so we want to see how Peter is saying it. Let's see how Peter is saying it. Read with me, if you will, at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. What an introduction. Peter lets us know from the very beginning, if we didn't get it already from his life in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, that Peter is one serious man about God and about the Gospel ministry and about people being saved. This is no small thing to Peter. Church life, Christianity, God in his life is not just a part. It's not something that he's got in the background that he thinks about from time to time. This is an all-consuming truth, life-changing thing to him. And so he just identifies Christians in this big, strong way. John Piper commenting on Peter and who he is in the Gospels. All that that I introduced to you last week about the one that walked on water, the one first into the tomb, the one who, who spoke first, the one who uh, denied Jesus three times. That Peter combined with these two rich, rich, rich letters. John Piper says this, This is one God-saturated man. And this is a God-saturated letter. And he means for us to experience a God-saturated life. I like that quote. Peter is a God-saturated man. This letter that we're reading is a God-saturated letter. And for those of us who would commit ourselves to it, hear it, believe it, understand it, he intends it to make us God-saturated people. Give us God-saturated lives. So the elect exiles 
are now qualified with this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. What is that? On one hand, you might read that and think, man, that's, that's, those are words I've never even said before. There's a bunch of big words there. What, what's going on here? I've never even thought about all that. I mean, I thought Jesus, I thought Christianity was just like church and believe in God and be forgiven of your sins. What, what is all that? You know, I'm, I'm one of those people that I'm not real big on, on big words. Do y'all have any people in your life that they, they just like to use big words and every time you talk to them, you hear them throwing out big words and you're like, well, what are you talking about? Nobody knows what that means. You're way over my head. You ever have somebody talk to you with big words and you're like, I don't even know what you're saying. And they give you this big point and you're like, well, what's that word mean? I, I, I tend to find myself saying, I don't really like big words. One, if you're using big words and people don't understand them, then you're not communicating, right? Right. Another one, if you're using big words, right, and they go over to people's head, then you're showing them that you're smarter than them, and whether you think that's a good thing or not, they're thinking, he thinks he's smarter than me. He's using words that I don't understand. So it disconnects you with the person that you're talking to. So I'm not real big on big words, okay? I won't mention that I'm not just good at using big words, but... Not real big on big words. But, and I tell this to our church often, if God uses big words, then we can't dismiss them. We have to say, I want to know what those are. What is foreknowledge and what is sanctification and what, what is stuff like that about? We need to know those. There are times in life, y'all, where a big word is fitting. Now, if you could have just used a different word then maybe you should have. But if the big word works, and it's fitting, then we should use it. And that's what God is doing here. And so you and I don't want to say, hey, the Bible's complicated in 1 Peter 1, 2. We don't want to say, hey, that's over my head. We don't want to say, hey, I'm not that educated. I'm not going to read this. We want to say, oh, God's speaking. I want to listen. And so that's what we'll do. I want to tell you that this passage here today, before I start breaking it down, this passage here today reminds me a little bit of a, of a Rubik's Cube. Y'all know what a Rubik's Cube is, right? One of those cubes that you have, and on every side there's nine squares, and, and every side's a different color, right? And once it gets, and, and, and the goal of it is to take it all jumbled up and to get every side of the cube the same color. And it looks so cool when it's done. But I don't know if you've ever done a Rubik's Cube before, or, or ever tried to do a Rubik's Cube before. It's... it's Almost impossible. For people who know, it might be impossible if you don't know how to do it. I'm not sure. It might be. Rubik's Cubes are interesting. The kids love them. JJ got one at, a, at some event here in the last year, and he came to me, and it's all jumbled up, and he's like, Daddy, fix it. And you know how Rubik's Cubes go. I mean, I, I could sit there for an hour, and I would not be able to fix it. You have to kind of understand a Rubik's Cube to be able to do it. I remember we were at a youth camp a couple years ago. And I've spent lots of time trying to figure out a Rubik's Cube, and I can't do it. I can't, I can't even get one side done. We were at a youth camp a couple years ago, and they had, there were about 1,000 people there. I think it was 2007. There were like 1,000 people there, and they would call students up on stage in front of 1,000 people, put a countdown on the big screen of like two minutes... 
And they would hand them a Rubik's Cube and say, all right, the clock's on. And there were kids on stage in front of a thousand people that would go... And they'd be done with it. In like 90 seconds. The whole thing. And here I am, a big word user, twisting it up for an hour and making no progress. How can that be possible? Well, the person that knows the Rubik's Cube would say, well, you've got, you got to know how to do it. You've got to understand this. 1 Peter 1-2 is like that today. Please listen. I'm not saying that Christianity... I'm not saying that Christianity is like a Rubik's Cube. You've got to understand it to be able to, to be saved. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that what Peter is explaining here about what he's calling Christians has some depth to it. And that you and I need to know what he's talking about when he says some depth. What has happened in the heart and life of a true redeemed person is no small thing. The Bible says it is the power of God at work in us. This is what Peter's explaining. Let me walk us through verse 2. He says that these people are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This word foreknowledge creates a lot of trouble. You're going to see as we go through Peter, my job's about to get real tough. There are a lot of complicated hard passages in 1 Peter, okay? There's the potential over the next year for y'all to be really upset with me through me trying to explain 1 Peter, honestly. Some controversial stuff here. This word foreknowledge has often been explained as God knowing the future. I want to tell you up front that it is, does not mean that God knows the future. This means that God has preordained, planned, made, caused, the future. That's what foreknowledge means. These people are the elect exiles of God because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's what it means. It was God's purpose for them to be this way. Let me show you this same word being used in another place. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is fitting because this is Peter preaching. This is the first sermon that we have in the book of Acts. This is Peter preaching when the Holy Spirit is coming. Peter is preaching one of the most well-known, one of the most powerful sermons we've ever seen, we've ever heard. This is the same Peter that is writing 1 Peter. This is Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2 you see that his sermon starts at verse 14 of Acts chapter 2. And starting in verse 17, he quotes a big, long, lengthy passage from the Old Testament. But I want you to look at verse 22. He's preaching to the Jews. He says, men of Israel... This is Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words... Jesus of Nazareth. Now let me stop there for just a second. Listen, folks. All preaching, all preaching should be about Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's Genesis, Ezra, Psalms, Jeremiah, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, 1 Peter, Revelation, it doesn't matter where it is. All preaching is about Jesus. There is no salvation of anybody anywhere apart from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and rising from the grave. All preaching is about Jesus. He says, hear these words, men of Israel. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So he says, Jesus, who y'all know, man of Nazareth, you know him. He's the one who did wonders, miracles, signs. He's the one y'all have observed. He's the one you've seen. He's the one who is a Jew also. He came from y'all. He came from us because uh, uh, Peter's a Jew too. He says, we know Jesus. Verse 23. He says it again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him and killed by the hands of lawless men. What Peter's preaching there is that what they did was the purpose and plan of God. The Bible teaches us that it is the absolute plan of God for Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross. The Bible teaches us that that was God's plan from the very beginning. The Bible teaches us that it was God's plan in the very beginning of everything that He planned that Jesus would come and die on the cross to ransom people from their sins. That is not something new. Jesus dying on the cross is not a reaction to anything else. It was simply in the plan of God. Now, we are not to take that as, well, then those people really didn't kill him. That's the exact point that Peter is preaching against. He says, no, what God had planned and foreordained in his foreknowledge, what God did, you did. And see, they don't believe what Peter is preaching. That's why Peter's preaching it to them that they would understand. They are saying, no, we hate Jesus and we want to kill him, and that's what they did. Jesus would say in John chapter 10, nobody takes my life from me. They're saying, no, we're about to take your life. Jesus says, no, you can't take my life. I'm God. I'm laying my life down on my own accord. And they're thinking, heck with that. What are you talking about, you crazy man? We're about to kill you. You better stop saying you're God. Nobody is God except God alone, and we're going to kill you. And Jesus says, you're right, I'm God. And you're not killing me. God is sacrificing me for the redemption of people. See, both of those truths are happening at the same time. This is the plan of God that God tells us in the Bible throughout that this was His plan and this is what the people are doing. Flip back now to 1 Peter. This is the same Peter who preached that in Acts chapter 2 writing to Christians who he calls elect exiles. And he says, these elect exiles are according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here's what we're saying, that God at the very beginning, had a plan to save people. If you look down in the same chapter, maybe even the same page, look at verse 18 of chapter 1. Uh, let's start at verse 17. He's talking about how God saves people. It's very fitting with the foreknowledge of elect exiles. He says... 
Verse 17, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, noting knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who He raised from the dead and gave Him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Peter there uses the same word again. That Jesus, as Savior, Lord, and Redeemer, as crucified on the cross and risen from the grave, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. For Peter, foreknowledge strengthens salvation. When somebody says they are saved, what the Bible teaches is that God has done something to me. The Bible is not teaching that I've done something. Foreknowledge illustrates this. Let me try to make it in an illustration. Let's say here, if everybody can see this table. Can everybody see this table? Can everybody see this? Let's say that this table is the world. And we won't even go all the way to to that flower. We'll just say right here is the world. And everybody that God has created is right here in this world. Right now, it's a little bit over 7 billion people. That's a lot of people on earth. Throughout the history of the world, I don't know how many people there have been. But right now, there's about 7 billion. Okay? And all of those people were made to be God worshipers. Okay? That's why He made them. The Bible teaches clearly that God created them for His glory. Any human being, anywhere, doing anything that is not a worshiper of the true God of the Bible, the only God, that person is wrong and in their sins and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody denies that people sin. We deny whether that sin is okay or whether that's wrong or not. Everybody sins, and we know that. So everybody that God has made was made for God's glory, but they don't. So what God is doing in the world is redeeming people that will be sure and certain strong worshipers of God, followers of Jesus, those people that love Him. God is making people out of all of the people on the earth who are elect exiles. He's pulling people out. Now, many people will preach that God's just sitting over here going, I love y'all, come on. Y'all come to me. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that these people here, us, in our sins are dead. Dead in our sins. Dead to any spiritual life. None. The Bible would say, and and, and so again, if, 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 if you don't agree with me, I want to show you this what the Bible says. The Bible would say that these people, that there are none righteous. No, not one. That there are none who seek after God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Before God, the smartest man and the dumbest man are in that same position. Before God, the the most wicked man and the, the best man you know are in that same position. Before God, the person who's raised in church and has been here every single day for the first 20 years of their life and the person that's never even heard of God 
are in that same position. We have all sinned. We have all sinned and need a Savior. Some people say that God doesn't sit here, but that He knows that some people might believe. And so God comes over and reaches out His saving hand and says, gets it all the way there really close and says, if anybody wants to be saved, grab hold of my hand, I'll save you. It comes close. That's when you hear people say things like, God's done everything He can. The only thing you got to do is choose to be saved. And so they're saying that God's, you know, God's done everything He possibly can, and now you just got to grab on. The Bible doesn't say that either. either. In John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus is in a heated discussion with the Pharisees. John 6, 44. Many of y'all have been reading Mark this week in the reading plan. And many of you have said to me, man, Jesus keeps giving it to the Pharisees. Yes, he does keep giving it to the Pharisees. Because the Jews are saying, we're the people of God and we're not listening to you. And Jesus keeps going, I am God. If you were the people of God, you would love me. But since you don't love me being God, you're not the people of God. In John 6, 44, he says to them, no one can come to me, listen, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So whether you think God's sitting over here, or whether you think God's come all the way here, the Bible teaches from the beginning to the end, in passage after passage, that nobody here comes until the Father gets them. Now what it does teach is that on a regular basis, according to the preaching of the gospel, Christ crucified and risen, that God is often Saving one, saving one, saving one. Now the way he does that is umpteen million different ways at all times. I had a high schooler tell me, I asked him, when did he get saved? He said, he said uh, man, you came up there and preached to our basketball team one time and I knew then that God had saved me. I believed on what you said. That's when it happened there. For me, it happened as a 12-year-old boy at a Sunday night service at church because it was a special Christmas concert. We didn't even normally go to stuff like that, but that's when God changed my heart. But the Bible says that every time, no matter what it is, many of y'all, it happened here on a Sunday morning. For some of y'all, it might be happening right now. You might be thinking, man, God is drawing me to himself right now. But every time, he is making you an elect exile. He's taking you out of this world system and he is grabbing you and saying, welcome to my kingdom. Welcome to my kingdom. And the Bible tells us that until Christ returns, God is doing that at sometimes a lot in some places, and it sometimes it's kind of like a drought in some places. Like, for instance, right now, okay, right now in the Middle East, we see very few people getting saved. There are some, but we see very few. God's still doing it, just not many. But right now in China, it's booming. There are literally like churches coming up everywhere in China. People are getting saved and baptized by the thousands, by the millions. All church historians are saying that the 1900s, 1900s Christianity was thriving in, in Europe, in England. 
In the, in the, in the, in, sorry, in the 1800s. In the 1900s, it was in America where it looked like Christianity was booming and residing. But in the 2000s, it will be China where the Christian church is exploding. Because God is there saving people according to the preaching of the gospel. Now, I spent a lot of time on this point because Peter wants us to understand that it's one thing to say, yeah, I heard about God and I decided to, I decided to follow Him. And He sat over here acting like this the whole time and He welcomed me. It's a whole other thing to say, I was over there. I was lost. My heart enjoyed sin. I was blind. I could not see. I didn't understand that life was about God. And He came and He drawed me and He convicted me of my sins and He saved me. And He made me elect. He made me chosen. He made me an exile to where now I don't want to go back. I don't want to be about that. I want to be about God because He did something to me. It was, his in, it was in His plan to save me, and He did. When your most favorite song, Amazing Grace, which everybody loves that song, was written, it had that exactly in mind. Listen to the words. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Y'all, wretches aren't over there saying... You know, we're pretty good folks. We're going to live for God. Let's head over here to God today. Wretches don't do that. Wretches say, we're staying right here. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I'm found. God found me. Blind, but now I see. You used to be blind, but God gave me sight. All of these things, plus several more, are illustrated in the Bible. The Bible says that you can't hear the truth of God until God gives you ears to hear. The Bible says you cannot see and understand the truth of God until God gives you eyes to see. The Bible says that God does not make sense to you in your sins until God gives you that. The Proverbs say over and over again that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is death. God has to save us. And this is what Peter is saying. Now, what I think is fascinating is that Peter is not writing a letter right now explaining salvation. Peter is just using descriptives to talk about Christians. He could have written from Peter to the Christians. But what he's saying is, these are what Christians are. Elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This was God's plan. Now... In case your mind has really started wandering, let me, let me remind you that the Bible tells us that God in His love is saving people. That God in His mercy is saving people. That God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners there, Christ died for us. That while we didn't want anything to do with God, Jesus still died on the cross for our sins. The Bible says that Jesus came to bring us to God. Peter will say that later. I'll preach that in a couple weeks. Jesus brings us to God. How do you get from here to God? It is not you walking. It is Jesus coming, picking you up and saying, hey, I'm taking you to God. 
And I look back on my life and I think, how did I get in this position? My parents are here today and I'm happy to have them with us visiting from North Carolina this week. And my dad often reminds me, boy, how did you become a preacher? And there's a lot of things in, in our lives and, and like in your life too that you think, how did I end up this way? How did I end up this way? How did I end up so different from what I used to be? It's a good thing that I live 500 miles from Charlotte, North Carolina, because none of y'all know what I was like in high school. How did I end up this way? I'm telling you what the Bible says. God came, changed my life, brought me to Jesus. In the book of Jude, he, he writes a letter, Jude does. And he says, he's writing, again to Christians, but here's how he says it. To those loved by God the Father. To those, let's see, what's he say? Those called, those loved by God the Father, and those kept by Jesus Christ. What's the emphasis on when he says, called, loved by God, and kept by Jesus? What's the emphasis on? No question. God. I'm writing a letter to Christians, Jude says. Well, what do you mean by Christians? Those who are loved by God, called by God, and kept by God. Peter, totally different man, says, I'm writing to the elect exiles. I'm writing to those according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And again, the reason why Peter is saying this, not because it's controversial at all, it's controversial because you and I have believed a lot of things before we knew the truth. He's teaching this because if you believe that, there is absolutely no question that you're saved. Because I didn't get saved because I wanted to. I got saved because God saved me. Now the Bible says that when God saved somebody, let me give you one more analogy. The Bible says that in our sins right there, that we have hearts that are dead in our sin. The Bible even calls them hearts of stone that cannot respond to God. They cannot. The Bible says that when Jesus comes and does this, He takes out your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And that heart of flesh is new and alive to God. He takes you from here, gives you a heart of, uh, takes out the heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh, puts you here, and your new heart loves God. This is what Jesus was talking about when He says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't understand. Born again? You mean go back into my mom's womb? Which is a ridiculous question. And Jesus says, no. God's got to give you a new birth, a second birth. And all Jesus' meaning is, is that when God comes and saves you, He's making you new. A new creation. And the new creation now loves God. I'm not what I used to be, Peter says. Elect exiles are not what they used to be. Well, what happened? God did something to me. He saved me. You know what Peter's doing? You know what this type of language does? It causes every one of us to think, did I just have some experience that I was proud of myself for what I did? Or is the power of God at work in me? Or am I really a child of God? Or is God my Father? He goes on after that to say, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, these next three things, sanctification, obedience, and sprinkling with the blood, which I need to get through really quickly, are qualifying to the foreknowledge of God the Father making you an elect exile. The first, sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is a big word that just means, listen to me, to set apart. To set apart or to make holy. That's what sanctification means. The Bible would call God's people holy ones. The Bible, listen to me, teaches that Christians are saints. Not when they die, but saints right now. Why? Because we've been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? Set apart holy. Here's what I'm saying. The Bible says that when God saves somebody, then the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them. This is what I need to help you understand. When God comes and does this to you, the actual physical change that's happening is is that God now lives inside of you. There are two types of people in the world. Those that God is living inside of, Christians, and those that God is not yet living inside of, non-Christians. They need to get saved. And Him living inside of you is not God the Father inside of you. It's not Jesus Christ the man. Jesus Christ was a human being. Not Jesus Christ. It's the Spirit of Jesus Christ living inside of God's children, and that makes them holy. The Bible says that when God looks at a believer, He sees pure and holiness, flawless, because He is seeing the holy righteousness of Jesus in the Spirit in them. That's why he says that as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins from us. Even though you and I know ourselves to be sinners, the Bible teaches that God has removed our sins and washed them away. So when he looks at us, he sees us possessing the holiness of Christ Jesus, and he sees us as holy and sanctified. That's what he's talking about. The next one, for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now this is one that needs to be taught more. The Bible teaches, hands down, that if God has saved you, you should and will be obedient to God. That's what the Bible says. Now, I hope y'all don't see me as a holy roller, and I hope that y'all know that I'm as much of a sinner as anybody here. But the Bible does teach, and we need to hold ourselves accountable to it, that you and I ought to be diligent to obey Him. That's what the Bible says. And here's why it's able to say it. He's not putting the emphasis on you there obeying. That'll never happen. The Bible says that we're unable to obey. These people here are never going to ultimately obey. Now, we obey sometimes, but not all the time. And the Bible goes ahead and says, if you've disobeyed once, you've broken the whole thing. A sinner's a sinner. A lot of sins, a little sins, doesn't matter. We're all in that boat. Well, where can somebody like a church or a Christian not be a hypocrite and get the power to obey? Because every single thing I'm talking about today is what God's doing in me. He elected me. He made me an exile. He sanctified me by putting the Holy Spirit in me. He loved me by giving me love. He gave me a new heart. The Bible says the new heart loves to obey God. The Bible says that the new heart in Ezekiel will be careful to obey God's law. Y'all might know somebody that loves Jesus and is really careful to live an obedient life. Watches out for sin. Guards against it. Hates it. But you know what is another point of obedience? That we repent when we disobey. I love this truth. I want to say this to every single person that I could ever talk to. I want to say this to every lost person in the world. Obedience is also doing the right thing even when you do the wrong thing. It is. Listen, y'all, we sin. Christians sin. And we we need to make sure that we communicate that we know that. And we don't want to ever act like to the world that we don't. 
And we're clearly not better than anybody else. If there is anybody in the world that got out of this spot and got over here to be a God lover, it is not because they were good. It is completely because God did it. And when those people sin, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sins. And yet again, the Bible says that God gives us repentance. Repentance is a gift that God gives. We want to obey. Even when we disobey, we respond with wanting to obey. Many of you are believers in Jesus. And you know that you sin against God and you hate that. You've often had to go to your family, to your spouse, to your children and say, Look, I'm sorry. I've messed up here. Would you forgive me? I've asked God to forgive me. And I know that He does through Jesus. You know what? Y'all, this, listen to me, is the strength of church life. That we know how to say, I have sinned. That we know how to model to each of ourselves and to the community around us and to our co-workers, yes, I am a believer in Jesus. And I often fail to live like it. Would you have mercy upon me? Would you forgive me? I'm sorry I did that. That is being obedient even when you're disobedient. And what Peter is saying here, that when God saves somebody, He makes them obedient to Jesus Christ. And then lastly, he says, for sprinkling with His blood. It's interesting that he says this. In an Old Testament sacrifice, what they would do is they would take an animal and they would kill it and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on there and they would say that God has told you to sacrifice this animal. If you're sacrificing this animal because of your sins and believing that God will still love you and accept you because of that punishment on that animal, when you you believe that, we put blood on you to demonstrate that you believe that. Now, we don't have to do that anymore. Why? Not because sacrifices are outdated. Because there was one sacrifice that overrides every sacrifice. The sacrifice of God's Son. When Jesus was killed on the cross, God was killing His Son so that nobody has to be killed. And when you say, or you model, or you live, I believe in Jesus. And when you turn from your sins and say, God, forgive me. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus washes away our sins. It is through the blood of Christ that we are right with God. We believe that Christ's death on the cross satisfied God's discipline against sin. That's why Micah's so good at choosing songs. Because the song we literally just sang before I walked up here was Jesus paid it all. His blood on the cross did everything for us. And when we believe that, we are washed clean of our sins. This is Peter's intro to his letter. Elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, for obe- uh, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling 
with His blood. Notice here the work of the Trinity. That's what I have as the title of this. The work of the Trinity in salvation. You know, we believe in the Trinity. That there is one God who exists in three persons. Only one God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the one God. Notice here that he says, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and the obedience to Jesus Christ. The Father foreknows, the Spirit sanctifies, and the Son cleanses. 1 John 1.7 says, The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Tom Schreiner says that what Peter said here is important. Conversion is not merely an intellectual acceptance of the gospel, nor is it faith with a blank slate. Conversion involves obedience and submission to the gospel, what Paul called the obedience of faith. Peter could have just said, from Peter the Apostle to Christians. But as you and I know, there are a lot of different meanings out there when somebody says that they're a Christian. Christian in 2015 in Fairdale, Kentucky or in the United States of America can mean a whole lot of different things. So you and I want to qualify who we are. We even want to qualify what we mean when we say that we're, we're a church or a Baptist church or anything like that. We are people who have come to know that the Bible is the truth and we believe it. And so if Peter has an explanation of how we became Christians, we commit ourselves to it. We should see ourselves here on earth as elect exiles. Saved by God. Being sanctified by the Spirit. Holy in the eyes of God. Desiring to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Because His blood has washed us clean of our sins. A few months back, I had a conversation with one of our young adults. And they used phrases like this. I'm just still trying to find myself. I'm trying to figure out who I am. You know, a lot of young people say that. And it seems like people are getting older and still saying that. I'm trying to find myself. I'm trying to figure out who I am. What's my identity? Peter wants Christians to know absolutely who they are. He wants us to know ourselves. He wants us to be a church in the world, exiled out of the world, yet knowing that God is at work in us. He wants us to be strengthened in how we are saved, why we are saved, what made us saved. He wants us to know matter-of-factly that it is God's sovereign, gracious, loving hand that has saved us. This is just his introduction. If you're here today, I ask you to believe in Christ. I ask you to ask yourself, is God at work in me? I ask you to be certain that you know God is doing this to you. God has saved you. He is changing your life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for 1 Peter. Thank you for Peter giving us some deep stuff, yet wanting us to, to know the power of God in salvation. He doesn't want us to be these people who say, I, I don't really know what happened to me. I, I'm not sure if I'm really a Christian. I'm not, I'm not sure. He wants us to be people who 
know our identity. So He calls us these things. Father, we ask that You here would work in our hearts. Strengthen us as Your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.